Speaking of ready to go, are you? All right, let's do it. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll finish off this incredible chapter looking at 15 to 23 uh, there. And I, I ran across a story that I thought would be the perfect opening for our time this morning in these particular verses. And it's about the town of Itasca, Texas. And prior to World War II, there was a major fire in an elementary school that actually killed 236 children. Well, obviously the town was devastated and as the town expanded and grew, eventually they built a new school and with the new school, they were the proud owners of the most technologically advanced sprinkler system in the world. So they had some of the honor students of the school give tours of the school, showing off what it was that they had uh, put in place that would never again allow such a huge tragedy to strike the city. And Itasca, Texas continued to grow, and it wasn't but seven years later, and they needed to expand the school. And when the contractors showed up to do the expansion on the school and add the new wing, they found that the state-of-the-art sprinkler system had never been hooked up to water. This is the perfect illustration for where Paul is taking us in his letter to the Ephesians. He has already established for us that God designed a system before the foundations of the world that would save all souls who are in Christ. And that system or the mechanism that's able to save souls was and is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he then reminded us that we have in Christ one, we've been signed into the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. Two, we have received the promised Holy Spirit. And thirdly, we are delivered from the power of the second death by the blood of Jesus. And for one particular generation, this one, yes. I believe, we're going to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Now, we noted three things from our text last week. And the first was simply this. The more we know and do His will, the better our lives will be. And listen, God has great plans for all of us. He has works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And your life is going to be at its best when you're walking in those things. Somebody say amen. amen. Because the fact is, good works and doing God's will are how we bring Him glory. That's why He left us here. That's why he doesn't instantaneously take us as soon as we're born again to get us out of here into a place that's far better than here. He has stuff for us to do. And the reason for that is he wants to receive glory through us, as we'll see in a moment. And lastly, we found that if you have the Holy Spirit, you will soon be in heaven. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will soon be in heaven. Now, our purpose as new creations is to bring God glory so... Contrary to what we hear today, bringing God glory is how you can have your best life now. Amen. That's the best life. And we're not trying to earn or keep our salvation by good works. We're supposed to bring him glory as those who are in Christ. This is what Jesus said in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. In 5.16 of Matthew, let your light so shine before men that when they see, they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, our last point was a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it was meant to get us to think a little bit, where we said, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will soon be in heaven. And I mentioned last week, we could say that if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to be in heaven. But listen, Paul is making the point, the Bible makes the point, Jesus made the point, that in this life you will have tribulation. tribulation. 
This life is filled with tribulation and trouble, yet we're told and reminded that it's like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And life is over before you know it in comparison to the eternity that we're going to enjoy. And the Bible also describes eternity as nothing like this life. There is no tribulation in heaven. There are no trials in heaven. In heaven. There is no mortgage payment in heaven. There's no car payment in heaven. Amen? It just keeps getting better and better. We could keep going, but we may as well finish the message. Now, in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit guarantees that we have that trial and tribulation-free eternity awaiting us, we should therefore look at the afflictions that we do endure in life as momentary and light by comparison. And this is what Paul was saying. And he, we have to keep them compared to the glory that we're going to enjoy someday. So as our illustration reminds us, the mechanics are all in place. Everything is already done. But are we plugged in to the power supply? Now in Exodus 9:16, the Lord said to Moses, but indeed for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you. Note the personal pronouns there, God taking responsibility for his raising and empowering. That my name may be declared where? In all the earth, he tells Moses, this is the purpose for why I've raised you up. King David would say in Psalm 68, 35, Oh God, you are more glorious than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. And then Paul would tell Timothy, that famous verse in 2 Timothy 1, 7, that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of Power, love, and a sound mind. And boy, are the sound minds becoming a limited commodity in these days. Things are crazy right now. Amen? Amen. Now, like we mentioned in our opening message, we don't need to ask for what we already have. We need to use what we already have. We've already been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We've already been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, the purpose of God's power in us is to declare his name to all the earth, like he told Moses, because he is more awesome than any holy place, any temple, any synagogue, or any church building, like David said. And Paul himself would write that the power of God in work in, at work in us defeats the spirit of fear, leaving us with love and a sound mind. Now, what Paul is going to remind us of as those who have already received all things pertaining to life and godliness and the spiritual blessings we mentioned a moment ago, we're taking our title directly from our text. And this morning, we are going to plug in to the exceeding greatness of his power. That is our title this morning, the exceeding greatness of his power. We'll encounter the phrase in verse 19. And what we will also find is that this power is toward us. Now, the Greek word there is ice, E-I-S, and it actually means in us. His power is in us. He has empowered us, just like he raised up Moses, just like he was in David. And we don't want to be like the school in our intro, having everything in place, yet not be connected to the supply line. And sometimes I don't think we realize the power that we have. Do you know the devil can't make you do anything? Hello? The devil can't make you do anything. Why? 
1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The devil can't push you around. He can tempt you. He can throw stumbling blocks in front of you, but you can clear them all and you can resist every temptation according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God, who is faithful, will with the temptation provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We can't do, and some of you, I'm going to date myself. Some of you have no clue who Flip Wilson is, but he was a human being. But one of his little mantras was, the devil made me do it. He can't make you do anything. As a matter of fact, you resist him and he has to flee. So we need to understand the power we have. Sometimes we don't tap into it because we don't realize that it's ours. Sometimes I think we just doubt that we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I hope today we can all leave plugged in and fully connected and not be the kind of all show and no go sprinkler system like we talked about at the beginning. So you ready to get plugged in? You ready to get powered up? Stand and read with me, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we'll find the exceeding greatness of his power. Verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we thank you for these truths this morning, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful text. And I pray, God, that you would open our eyes and that we would be enlightened this morning to your majesty as well as your power at work in us. So we ask, God, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul opens this section by pairing two Christian attributes as evidence of their being possessors of a guaranteed inheritance. And that is one, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and two, a love for all the saints. I want to pause there. He noticed their love for all the saints. Did you catch that? Yeah. That's the emphasis this morning. <laughs> all the saints. And the latter of those two things is sadly lacking in our day. And the love mentioned for all the saints is a supernatural kind of love. The Greek word, we call it agape. It's actually agape. And it's the love that God has for us. It's an unconditional love. It's a supernatural love. Now, you ready for this this morning? Yeah. Buckle up. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. It's a love that is greater than interpretational disagreements. Yeah. It is a love that should be seen between the Calvinist and the Arminianist. Yeah. 
It is a love that should be seen between the pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-tribber because it's the blood of Jesus that saves us, not your eschatological position or how you view the issue of election. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for who? One another. One another. Paul further explains that as having a love for all the saints. Even the sandpaper ones. Even the ones you may disagree with on some type of interpretive issue. And listen, we need to realize that since God did not give us a spirit of fear but a power, that means we've been given the power to love. That's right. yeah. We've been given the power to love through our differences, through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Does God agree with everything you think? No. Does He agree with everything you do? No. Does He stop loving you when you do something He disagrees with? No, then we shouldn't either, should we? No. Now listen, we're not talking about uh, the savage wolves in sheep's clothing that Paul warned this very church about in the book of Acts. We're talking about the interpretive things that some would label as non-essential doctrines that so many people divide over. We did a, a little thing yesterday with Amir and uh, Jan Markell, and somebody asked a question, and, and it was actually, it was kind of interesting because it was our most viewed live prophecy roundtable that we've ever had, and the topic was doctrine matters. And what we came away with was people realize they need to know what it is we're supposed to believe. And the question came up about tongues, and it just hit my mind that because tongues is described as the least of the gifts, it's caused the most trouble. Why? Why are we fighting over these things? But it happens all the time, and Paul says, listen, because of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, I give thanks for you and mention you in my prayers. Yes. And then in verses 17 and 18, which is where we'll draw our first point from, he reveals to them what he prays for them. And what he prays for them are manifestations of the exceeding greatness of God's power in them and therefore us. Listen, there's only one church. There's only one kind of Christian. And that's a born-again Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. If you are born again, you are a Christian. Now, you might be a Pentecostal Christian. You might be a charismatic Christian. But the question is, are you born again? That's where the whole debate begins and ends. And we need to end some of the infighting that's going on in the church today. Amen? Amen. Now, what's he pray for them and therefore us? Wisdom and revelation. Wisdom and revelation in their knowledge of Him, Him being Jesus. In other words, Paul says, I want you to know more about Jesus. And then he says that the eyes of your understanding will illuminate the hope of your calling and what a truly rich inheritance you have as a saint. This is what he's praying for them. And Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, to gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the what? Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in, next word, all, all your conduct because it is written, 
be holy for I am holy. Now, Peter indicates that within the hope of his calling is holiness, which is obedience and nonconformity to former lust when we were ignorant of God's will, when we were unregenerate or non-believers. And these are manifestations of the grace given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter and Paul both use the same word that is the title of John's unveiling of Jesus, the last book of the Bible, Bible, Apocalypsis. And it means to unveil. It can even mean to take the cover off. It can even mean to blow the lid off or to fully expose. And Paul says, I pray that the Father of glory would fully unveil to you Jesus Christ that you may know. Now, that's not the word that is often used in the Greek for know or knowledge, gnosis. But this particular word here is oida, and it means to see and understand. It means to comprehend or realize what is the hope you have because of the fact that Jesus called you and separated you from your former self. And that you would understand the riches of the glory and the, the inheritance you received when you responded to God's invitation. And Paul is essentially praying that the Ephesians would understand what it means to be a Christian. Amen. What it means to be a follower of Christ. I wonder if we need to be praying that today. We need that in our day. Amen? Amen? Now this brings us to our first truth about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us. And it comes from our, uh, actually, uh, verse 18, where the eyes of our understanding are enlightened that we may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And listen, here's one of three things we'll highlight this morning. We're not hoping for a glorious inheritance. We're waiting for one. We're not hoping for a glorious inheritance. We're waiting for one. Listen, we're not sitting around waiting for the reading of the will. Hebrews says when the testator dies, the will then becomes in force. And the testator, speaking of Jesus, is dead. He is now alive forevermore. And therefore, everything that his death and resurrection brought to us, we now have, including the expectation of an inheritance in heaven, proven by the presence of the Spirit in us. Paul says, I pray that you can see in Jesus all that awaits you until he comes to get you. Yep. Now, let me ask you, if you believed or found out rather that you had received a multi-million dollar inheritance, and I'm not talking about a letter from a barrister in Nigeria who was told to <laughs> contact, you've all got that letter right and that email. I think we've all got that at one time or another. But what if it really happened? What if it was true and you could verify that it was true and there really was a long lost relative and they really did leave you millions of dollars? Let me ask you this. Would you live differently knowing the future was far better than the present? Even if you hadn't received anything as of yet, knowing it's coming, wouldn't you live differently? Wouldn't you have a different attitude towards your financial problems if you knew the check really was in the mail? And incredible riches were actually on the way. Let's add this. Would you be nicer to the bill collector who called when you knew that someday there would be no bills? Would your attitude be different about not being able to fix the washer or the appliance or anything else you can't afford at the time or when the inopportune moment when the brakes go out or the car breaks down or all of these things? Would you face them differently knowing someday it's all going to end? Well, someday it's all going to end. 
And in Luke 6, 20 to 23, Jesus lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor. Seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast your name out as, as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That's what we do, the happy dance when people insult us and hate us, right? For indeed, your reward is great. When and where? In heaven. In heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. And Jesus is saying, this is nothing new. This has been going on since humans have been on the face of the earth and some developed a relationship with God and others refused him. And what Jesus is saying is what Paul is praying, that the saints would remember the hope of their calling and in that calling is a glorious inheritance. Now listen this morning. It's not something we hope will happen. It's something that's going to happen. Amen. It's something that we are waiting for it to happen. And nothing can keep it from happening. Amen. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to heaven. Amen. And in comparison to eternity, it's going to be soon. Maybe even today, he'll come get us and we'll be done with all this mess. Amen. I love what Dr. Tommy Ice says. What, what problem do you have that the rapture wouldn't solve? <laughs> All of them, right? Now, may the Lord enlighten our understanding of the hope that we have in Christ. And may we always remember, ours is the kingdom of heaven. We might be poor and hungry now, but we never will be then. We might weep now, but we will rejoice and laugh then. We might be hated now, but we will leap for joy then. For great is our reward in heaven. And get this, Jesus is coming soon. Now, let's look at 19 to 21 a second time. Here we have our title, What is the Exceeding Greatness of His Power Toward Us or in Us Who Believe According to the Working of His Mighty Power, Which He Worked in Christ When He Raised Him from the Dead And Seated Him at His Right Hand in the Heavenly Places Far Above All Principality and Power and Might and Dominion And Every Name that Is Named Not Only in This Age but also in that which is to come. Now, we have to remember that the Bible writers are writing in a position from Jesus' humanity as well as his deity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He was fully human, yet he was fully God with veiled majesty for the season that he walked this earth. And therefore, that's why Jesus would refer to the Father as his God. He's speaking from his humanity, and the authors are writing from that same perspective. And Paul has taken us back to the beginning establishing our calling from before the foundations of the world, and he has taken us to the future glorious inheritance that we are waiting for through him. And here he mentions the exceeding greatness of his power that we have between those things. And again, the Greek word ice, uh, translated as toward means to or into. And we can best understand this, I think, by letting scripture interpret scripture. In Romans 8, 11, Paul says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells where? In you. in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells again where? In you. In you. And this is what Paul is pointing to in his prayer. That the exceeding greatness of God's power, which is mighty power, he adds, 
is demonstrated in the Father's resurrection of the Son from the dead, followed by the seating of his, his, uh, Him at the right hand of majesty on high, and ruling eternally over all power, might, dominion, forever and ever, and every name given among men. Jesus' name is greater than that. And Paul is saying, that power is in you. Amen. That power is what you're connected to through the blood of Jesus. Now James makes a great example in 5.17 to 18 where he says, Elijah was a man who was way better than the rest of us. Is <laughs> that what he says? No. Elijah was a man with a nature like what? Ours. Like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months because God liked Elijah better than he likes anybody else. <laughs> no. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, it's kind of interesting to consider the other examples in Scripture, and we'll talk more about Elijah in a moment, but if we think about the life of Peter, Peter, the man who, the one of the twelve who got out of the boat and walked on the water, was also the one who sank when he took his eyes off of Jesus. <laughs> Peter, the one who responded at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. The Father revealed that to you. You're spot on. The next thing that Jesus said to Peter was, Get thee behind me, Satan, because Peter, figuring I'm hearing from God, I may as well correct his son when he's talking about his death. Now, Peter's the same guy who said, If the others would deny him, I never will. Who denied him three times? Peter. It was Peter. But once the eyes of Peter's understanding were enlightened to the hope of his calling, he was the first preacher of the church age, and 3,000 souls were added to God's kingdom through Peter's sermon. And he preached again not too long after that, and the church continued to grow. Now what we need to remember in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, is that him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works where? In us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, I think we all identify with Peter, right? We've all blown it. Hello? I said we've all blown it, not part of you. We've all blown it. We've all doubted. We've all said and done things that we shouldn't have done. And sometimes I think, we think, I could never be an Elijah. I could never be used like that. And this kind of thinking comes from setting your sights on the man instead of the one he was praying to. Elijah didn't shut up the skies, God did. Elijah didn't send fire down to consume the prophets of Baal, God did. It was God who was doing the work. It was the one who Elijah was praying to that had the power. So I have to ask the question for those who may think, I can't be like somebody like that, or I can't be like Elijah. Can you pray? Yeah. Then you can be like Elijah. Elijah is also the one, and here's where I likened him unto Peter. He's the one after seeing 450 prophets of Baal cut themselves and cry out to their God, never hearing anything, and then they're consumed, and the, the altar is consumed, and they were killed. 
and the altar is consumed and the, the sacrifice on it and all the water is dried up that he poured around in the trough that he had dug just to show the power of God. The next thing we read about Elijah was Jezebel said, I'm going to kill him. Now, 450 prophets were just taken out by Elijah. God just responded to his honoring him with fire that consumed the altar and the sacrifice. But a woman says, Elijah, I'm coming for you. He runs. He hides in a cave. And I love what the Lord says to him. Elijah, what are you doing here? God, I'm the only one left. It's just me. I'm the only faithful person. Maybe we are like Elijah after all. <laughs> Maybe he was a man with a nature like ours. Maybe he had fears. Maybe he had doubts. But he prayed to one who's the authority over all creation, who can shut up the skies at his word, who can make it rain at his command. It wasn't about Elijah. It was about Elijah's God. You have the same God. You have the same access to the same God through prayer. The veil has been rent. Jesus tore it from top to bottom with his own blood at his death and resurrection and later ascension. And therefore, you have a right to come into the presence of the Most High God through his grace and find it to be a help in time of need. Now, Mark 16, 19 to 20, we're told after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. This is his ascension. And sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached where? Everywhere. Everywhere. And the Lord working with them and confirming the word, the spoken word, through the accompanying what? Signs. And then Mark signs off with a final so be it or amen. Paul writes to the church at Thessaloniki in 1.5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in what? Power. And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And listen, if the power of God can raise Jesus from the dead after three days, set him at, set him at the right hand of majesty on high, positioning him as far above all principalities, powers, might, dominion, and every name, then he can do stuff through you and me. Amen. He can use you. He can use me. And here's our point, even though we just made it. And again, a package just to get us to think a little bit. You ready for this? Yes. God will never ask us to do anything that he can't do. God will never ask us to do anything that he can't do. Now, I'm sure there are those who are thinking, well, there are things God can't do. I mean, I hear this. When any kind of statement is made like this, God can't lie. God can't sin. God can't be tempted. God can't fail. That's right. And he's not going to ask you to do any of those things either. Right? But he may ask you to, ask you to do something you can't do in your own strength. But he'll do it with you. As a matter of fact, he'll do it, Period. You'll just be the vessel or the conduit for his power. He asks us to be holy. Can you be holy on your own? No. no. So he makes us holy through the blood of his own son. He makes us holy positionally, and then he empowers us to live holy practically. And in Matthew 10, 5 through 8, Jesus uh, sends 12 out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Then he instructs him, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have what? Received freely. Give. Doesn't the context demand you have to attach that to what was previously said? In order to give out the healing, so to speak, or to cleanse the leper or to raise the dead, you have to receive the ability to do so in order to give it out. None of these things Jesus told them to do along with the preaching were things they could do by themselves. There is no human that can raise the dead. There is no human that can heal the sick. And thankfully, we have technology today and doctors and all that stuff. But listen, there's nobody that can do what John and Peter, or God did through John and Peter at the Gate Beautiful in Acts 3, 6 to 10. Amen. Remember, there was a guy who was a beggar. He was at the gate hoping for alms from the worshipers who were going to the temple grounds. And in Acts 3, 6 to 10, Peter said, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have... I'm, I'm going to give to you. And then he gives this command. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Do you think this man that lay at the gate beautiful every day thought, wow, they didn't give me any alms? Nope. No. How am I supposed to have my best life now if I don't have any alms? <laughs> I think that he would prefer walking, leaping, and praising God over a handful of coins from two disciples. And there are those today who say God wants you to have silver or gold when what God has for you actually is far better. It's the exceeding greatness of His power. And listen, God is never going to ask you to do anything that He can't do through you. How do we know what He can do? Raise Jesus from the dead. Seated Him at the right hand of majesty on high forever and ever. So I'd be pretty comfortable if I were all of us in answering his call on our lives to serve him. Amen? Amen? Now, let's look at 22 and 23 real quick, and we'll get out of here. And he put all things under his feet. He, the Father, put all things under he, the Son's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, we've been doing, we mentioned that this is a, a book of doctrine, three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of duty, three chapters of what we ought to believe, three chapters of what we ought to do, and we're going to do a little more doctrinal housekeeping this morning. Now, there are those today who view what they call lordship salvation as unbiblical, and they even call it heretical. And they reject the notion that's presented through the adage, if he is not the Lord of all, he's not your Lord at all. Now, they make the typical error that critics do, and that is that they believe that lordship salvation teaches you have to make Jesus Lord of your life in order to be saved, when the truth of the matter is, what lordship salvation actually is, is that if you are saved, Jesus is going to be the Lord of your life. Amen. They reverse the order and yet act like what others believe uh, isn't so. Now, Lordship salvation is the antithesis of the easy believism in our day. 
where a person simply acknowledges a set of facts that are presented about a personage named Jesus, and that acknowledgement of a uh, specific set of facts saves you, and there need not be any change in your life, and they package this under the banner of works righteousness. Well, listen, when you are made righteous, Jesus goes to work in you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. Yet those saved by faith have good works prepared beforehand for them to walk in. Now, there are those today who say, you come to this cognitive recognition of this personage and name and then just go your way and you'll wind up in heaven no matter what you do or what you actually believe. And yet, the Bible says in Luke 2.11, this angelic announcement is, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a what? Savior, Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, yep. the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God and Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Titus 1.4 to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Savior. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Therefore, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our what? Lord, Lord and Savior. Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Listen, Lord means supreme authority. And Jesus is the supreme authority. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And Paul here makes the point of the lordship of Jesus above everything and everyone forever through the mention of all things being put under his feet. And then he says, not only is everything in the universe under his authority, so is the church, which is his body. Now listen, to promote that Jesus can be your Savior and not be your Lord is like saying that the body can live without a head. Listen, you can live without a finger, hand, arm, leg, right? Head? Uh, not so much. The head comes off, you are dead, right? Now, interesting, we hear over and over that the church is people, not a building. And that's true. But all of a sudden, when we come to these verses, the church becomes a collective institution and not individuals anymore. And the headship of Jesus over the church becomes more of an honorary title than an active and participatory role in individual lives. And yet Jesus would say in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what? The things that I say. He would say in John 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so, ah, Yahweh, so I am. He calls himself the I am. Jesus seemed to be under the impression that if you call him Savior, he's your Lord. And he seemed to be under the idea that if he's your Lord, you ought to do what he says. And since Jesus is God, what he says is God's word. 
And since the Holy Spirit is God, what he inspires to be written is God's word. So those who are saved should live by God's word. And listen, this doesn't imply that we are some type of mindless, robotic, blind followers who can't think for themselves. We think for ourselves all the time. And then we say, help, get me out of this mess. But what this should remind us of is that we have the mind of Christ who is smarter than us, knows what's good for us better than we know for ourselves, and has a plan for us that exceeds that which we have even crafted in our own thinking. So here's our last truth about the exceeding greatness of his power. And it's just kind of a no-brainer, something to take home with us that we'll remember. Listen this morning, if God can rescue our souls, he can certainly direct our lives. If God can rescue our souls, he can certainly direct our lives. As supreme authority over all creation by right of ownership and design, I'm pretty sure that we can trust that what he tells us to do is right and it's best. Amen. 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 I don't know. Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And, and check this now. He, is the he capitalized? Is the he capitalized? He delights in his way. In other words, Jesus views his ordering of our steps as delightful. Do you want to live a delightful life? I do. Think about the absurdity of denying the lordship of Christ over those whom he has saved with his own blood. That's like saying, Jesus is my savior, but I'm my own Lord. Or think about the reverse of our observation. We couldn't save our own souls, so how in the world are we going to know what's best for us? This is why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? And his implication from that question is it's contradictory on every level. It denies his omniscience, that he knows all and his supreme authority, that he is over all. And Paul says in verse 23 that it is Christ who is the fullness of his body, his church. Now the word uh, fullness is kind of an interesting Greek word. We mentioned the abbreviated form of it last week. It's pleroma. And it's an extended form of the word pleru, which means to fulfill, or is translated as fulfill. But pleroma is kind of interesting because it's not talking about the content that fills something up. It's talking about the container. In other words, everything that we need is found in Jesus. And that's why Paul would write to the church at Colossae in 2, 9, and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And as we saw in our last section, Paul tells the church at Colossae that Christ is the head of all principality and power. And in Ephesians, he says, and he's the head of the church. Now, doesn't it then stand to reason that as the supreme authority over everything, you'd have to know what you're doing? And he does. And I'm thinking since he knew how to save us, he also knows how to lead us. And since he knows how to save us, I'm thinking he knows what's best for us. I'm thinking he knows what's harmful to us. So having made us good by his own blood, he orders our steps and we should be delighted that he has done so and not see it as an infringement upon any aspect of life or even salvation by grace through faith. Listen, the only thing I found that being the captain of your own ship leads to is shipwreck. (laughs) It doesn't lead to anything else, amen? Amen. 
I would rather have the one who can say, let there be light and there is light, order my steps than me. I'd rather he be the Lord of my life than me. And listen, I don't think that shows you have a weak mind. I think it shows you have come to an understanding of who he really is. That he is the king that is greater than any king that has ever existed. He is the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful God of heaven and earth. And he is over all principality and power. And his name is greater than any other name in the course of human history. And because we have the mind of Christ, we to a small degree can then understand and hopefully to a greater degree experience the exceeding greatness of his power. You know, you are never going to learn everything there is to know about God. You're never in this life going to experience everything he can do. There's just not enough time. Because he can do anything. He can do all things. And he does them well. And there's nothing too hard for him. And that's why we're told to call to him and he will answer, Jeremiah says, and show you great and mighty things that you know not. There are things that he wants to show you about himself that you don't even know yet. Things he wants to do for you that you're unaware of. And again, that points back to what we're going to encounter in, in chapter 3, that he does things exceedingly abundantly above and beyond that, that which we ask or think. You know, and I'm not a buzzword guy. I, I, don't, I don't like buzzwords when it comes to Christianity. I think, you know, you don't need to dance around sanctification. Teach it. Yeah. Use the word. Teach it. Uh, you need to explain what propitiation is. You need to know what justification is. You need to know what reconciliation is. You don't need to make up a new word in order to describe it. But there's one that I have always liked, and that is we need to be big godders. You know? We need to be big godders. We need to understand that he is majestic and mighty, and he has authority, and he has power. And when we understand that, we're going to live different. And that's what Paul is saying. Let's not have everything we need available to us and not avail ourselves of it. Like a state-of-the-art sprinkler system that's not even hooked up to the water supply. Let's not live like that. Let's live like Jesus purchased the life for us. Let's live in the manner that he has called us to live. He hasn't given us the spirit of fear. But he has given us power, love, and a sound mind. Somebody say amen. And Father, we are grateful for your matchless word this morning. And we thank you that these things are ours. And Lord, we even have the initial payment, so to speak, as a down, that guarantee that we found last week it speaks of earnest money or down payment on something that is yet to be completely realized or owned. So, Father, we thank you that, that we're not hoping we have an inheritance. We're just waiting for it to be actualized. We thank you that the next life is nothing like this one. We thank you, Lord, that all the things that hurt us and harm us, uh, you have dealt with with your own blood. You conquered death, rescued us from the second death. Someday you're going to wipe away every tear. Someday 
we're going to eat from the tree of life and drink from the river of life and forever be with you and walk in a city with streets of gold and all the other things we know that awaits us. And Lord, help us to keep these things in mind when life is unfair and when we're hated for your name's sake, which is growing by the hour, it seems, in our country. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the prize and lift it above the moment and circumstance that we might remember at all times where we're going and who is the one who got us there. Help us in these things, we pray. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.